on the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, I'm Jason Drury, welcoming you to another of the continuing series of film, TV and video game composer interviews on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Michael McGeehy is the founder of New Discoveries Recordings and the Hollywood Studio Orchestra, which he conducts on these recordings. He earned a degree in music composition at the University of Alabama and completed his graduate studies in film scoring at the University of South Carolina studying under Fred Steiner, Bruce Broughton, Buddy Baker, and David Raskin. He is also a graduate of Earl Hagen's Film Scoring Workshop and has scored, recorded, and conducted original music for dozens of short films. He is the author of the Click Track Book, a technical manual for synchronizing film and music. In addition to his musical life, Michael worked at BMI as the director of film and TV and for the past 20 years he and his team at Sundial Technologies have designed and developed custom enterprise software for major motion picture studios. In 2018 McGeehy founded New Discovery Recordings, the demission of recording rare and unknown works by Bernard Herrmann. New Discovery Recordings releases freshly recorded orchestral suites each month at newdiscovery.bandcamp.com. These high quality audio recordings include 10 crime classic radio scores and previously unheard concert music like Annabelle Lee and the City of Brass. In January 2021 for the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, I had the great pleasure of talking to Michael McGeehy via Zoom at his home in Pasadena, California. During the interview, we talked about new discoveries, the project's inception, and the importance of these new re-recordings of the radio music of Bernard Herrmann. And during the show, you'll also be hearing some of these wonderful re-recordings performed by the Hollywood Studio Orchestra. Michael McGeehy, how did your interest in music start? Well, I began playing trumpet, I think around sixth grade or so, in the band and that sort of thing. I mean, I always enjoyed the concert music that we played, concert band. Um, you know, went on into junior high, high school and so forth, and into college playing in band, concert band, and sometimes jazz band. But I always preferred the concert works. And about, about the same time, I guess, Star Wars came out, and I was one of those kids that was sitting in the front row center with my friend and we sat through two showings on the opening day and went right out and got the album and were just fascinated by that music and went from there started buying more soundtrack albums my friend and i actually he's very prominent on the bernard herman web pages uh even to this day but he he actually bought went to this record store one day and bought i believe i know dracula john williams dracula was one of the albums and the, the gentleman who was at the counter said, oh, these are very good choices. And, you know, you have good taste in music. And it turned out he was a soundtrack collector. And he invited us over and we went to his house and he opens his closet, which has no clothes in it, <laughs> only albums, thousand, maybe well over a thousand LPs at the time that he'd been collecting. And he, 
he introduced us to all the great composers of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and so forth, and would literally give us stacks of records to take home with us, which we duly recorded on cassette tapes and brought back for the next stack. <laughs> so he was hugely influential, pointing us towards all the great composers, and in particular the Charles Gerhardt series of albums, which were, I guess, fairly new at that time, and he had all of them. And the Bernard Herrmann one definitely stuck out in my mind. But all of them we listened to, and that's how I sort of got really into film music, which led to later on wanting to write film music myself. Tell us about your musical education. Well, I studied uh, composition at the University of Alabama and went on from there to go through the USC film scoring program which was fairly new at the time. I believe it was the third year as an official graduate level program. So I went from listening to Fred Steiner's recording of King Kong to sitting in Fred Steiner's class, having him listen to my music, which was a, a big step up in my opinion. So it was a great program actually though, because that's really where I learned how to conduct a recording session because that's what all we did mainly was You'd get an assignment, you'd get a piece of film, you write the music, gather the musicians, put the session on, record it, and then the teacher would go through, tell you what you did wrong, mostly. <laughs> and we did a lot of recording sessions during that time. And the way they set it up was actually quite smart because every job that had to be done would be assigned to one of the students in the class, and you would rotate the jobs for each recording session. So by the time we got through that program, we had done each of the jobs several times. So one time you might be the music contractor getting all the musicians together. And the next time you might be the caterer putting the food on <laughs> for the session. And so that was a great way to learn by doing. And of course, the criticism from people like Fred Steiner and David Raxon and Bruce Broughton and uh, Richard Bellis, uh, Jimmy Haskell. There, there were so many people uh, in that program that were so great. I learned a lot there.
And that was a track entitled Haley's Theme from a digital album Love Themes available on Bandcamp, composed by my guest today, Michael McGee. Now, Michael, you've always had a special love for the work of Bernard Herrmann. What is it about his music that interests you? Uh, several things, I would say. The, the thing that drew me to him at first, you know, as a young person at listening to this music, it's just the sheer raw power of his orchestral music. It just really bowled me over. I remember listening to the Gerhardt On Dangerous Ground, the death hunt from On Dangerous Ground. And I, I, I was just flabbergasted by that piece and, and just loved it. And it just continues to amaze me every time I hear that piece. It was only kind of later that I got into the slower, softer kind of music, his more gentle side. And I, I think that there's a real subtle beauty to his music that's kind of overlooked because it's, it's overshadowed by the connection to Hitchcock and sort of the darker bent that a lot of his music takes uh, based on the movies that he did. And I think that's really been something I've gotten more and more fascinated with over the years. I even have in mind kind of an album of Herman Nocturnes, which sounds <laughs> incredible. You don't think of Herman and Nocturnes, but when you think of White Witch Doctor, you don't think of the Nocturne, but there's, it's this incredibly beautiful piece. And he has nocturnes in many of his scores, even King of the Kyber Rifles. You certainly don't think of the nocturne there, but uh, I think it would make a great album and show kind of another side of Herman's work. Uh, beyond the Ghost of Mrs. Muir, people don't really think about too much. Second is the orchestration. I, I think the idea that he had to create a unique orchestration for each score really sets his music or his scores apart from the standard fare, which especially at the time was very much orchestral music, you know, just straight ahead, a standard orchestra. And he tended to, you know, go his own way in that regard. And it really gives a, an extra depth of character to the, to each picture that he scored and his, the radio scores as well. They have their own sound and you can identify that sound with that picture. And I think that really is a an outstanding part of his music. Even in that, that's kind of one of the things that drove me to the crime classics was here he was using only three or four players and he never really standardized on, he didn't pick three, three instruments and that was it for the whole 50 episode run. There's, I think the most consistent is flute, oboe, and harp, which he used in 10 episodes. But beyond that, they're all different. There's uh, if you listen to the recordings I did, even there's one for three horns. There's a couple for three French horns. There's one for three oboes doubling on English horn, three bassoons, and then all sorts of combinations in between. The most in consistent instrument he used there was the harp. And I think that gave him a lot of depth and, and things to play with, with just three instruments. And then finally, I guess his just his dramatic sense seems quite unique. He really knows how to engage the listener. You know, he just brings you right into the drama and you know exactly where you're supposed to be. His music's never just wallpaper behind the scene. And uh, it's something that's quite related is I think his music doesn't portray emotions so much through the way some composers do. In other words, you have a melody. Oh, it's a major tune. I hear the eight bars. Oh, it's happy. You sort of go through this interpretation mode of understanding, oh, it's a major key and a happy melody, and therefore it's happy. But his music, actually just is the emotion in some way. And I think this is partly due to the way he breaks down music into these short cells that are sort of self-contained emotional units 
that are really easily digestible. They're very clear as to what their meaning is. At least they feel that way because you immediately are drawn into that mode of feeling, not even thinking. You know, you're really just experiencing it. And I think that's one of the reasons his scoring is so effective is that you don't have to actually be very focused on it to be affected by it. It's subliminal in that sense. So I think those are the big things that really strike me about Herman. So instead of newly recording his more famous film works, you decided to explore his obscure radio work, which is the basis of your new Discovery series of recordings. Tell us about the genesis of this unique project. Well, I always loved conducting. Most of the experience I've had with conducting has been conducting my own music. Uh, Although on occasion I was asked by other composers, my friends, you know, we either they weren't comfortable conducting or they, you know, they didn't feel up to it or they would prefer to be in the booth listening and giving feedback rather than on the stand. So I would conduct for them. That was always exciting. And so that was just something that I really liked to do. I had at least some aptitude for it. I kind of in the back of my head always knew that I wanted to do some recording someday. That was just there as a sort of a long-term goal in my life. But at some point in the past few years, 10 years or so, I realized, well, I have all the knowledge and the expertise and now the means to do this. So I started working on it and gathering information, researching scores, how to go about doing it, sort of walking through different scenarios of what might be the best way to approach it. And of course, I knew I wanted to record Herman. He's always sort of been my favorite. And I knew also that there's there's an audience for Herman's music, a ready-made audience in a way. Not necessarily a huge audience, but there is there is interest in his music. So I thought there, there would be at least some appetite for it. Personally, I craved more new Herman music because I knew everything that was out there, I thought. Uh, certainly all the things that had been recorded, I know from memory and have listened to them countless times, um, and every new recording, of course, I would get those as well. But what was the new Herman that was out there? And that, of course, led me to the earlier radio music. I knew that there was radio music, but there's been very little of it recorded. I thought, well, this is a good place to start. This is this is actual new material. Um, when you're presenting it, you won't be just presenting something that people already know, and they may love it and may want a new recording, but here's something unique. So that that's also one way to differentiate what I was doing than rather than just doing a re-recording of Psycho or something like that that's been done. It was a way to sort of try and stand out as well as bring something new to the table. And through my research, I had always known about the melodrums, which um, were something I'd heard about, kind of knew something about, but didn't know exactly what they were. But as the more I looked into them, I realized that they were there was enough material there for a good album. So that seemed like a good meaty place to start. So I picked a few of those to work with, and that was, that was some of the first recordings we did. And I knew after that, you know, there are many, many more radio scores to do, and there's plenty of material to go to. So I figured I'll just get started and hope someone takes an interest and we can continue on. <laughs> Thank you. 
That was music inspired by the poem Sainara by Ernest Dowson, composed by Bernard Herrmann and performed by the Hollywood Studio Orchestra, conducted by my guest today, Michael McGeehee. Now, Michael, tell us about the process of producing a recording for New Discoveries. Beyond all the research and selection of scores and business aspects and things like that, the interesting stuff starts when you do the score preparation. I take the scores, the original scores, and I put them into, I use Finale, could use anything, but that's what I use, with the ostensible purpose of creating the parts and everything. But the real thing that's going on is that you're studying the score, (laughs) because If you have to write it all over from scratch, you have to get into every single detail of that score, top to bottom, front to back, and really understand what's going on, how the music interacts with itself, what's it built upon. And that's when you start forming all your ideas about how you're going to conduct this piece. Recall some of these pieces that I'm doing, no one's ever heard before (laughs) because there's no recording. Some of them there are, and and that's helpful, and I certainly study the recordings to hear what Herman did originally. But a few of these, there's nothing, so we're just starting from scratch and looking at the score. So you really have to get intimately familiar with each and every detail behind that score to figure out how you're going to approach it. And some of the scores, they require kind of a degree of reconstruction because they usually have some kind of markings on them that probably Herman made in the recording session. So they're scribble here, scribble there, scribble there. And sometimes the bars are marked out. Sometimes, you know, there's arrows and all sorts of things that are just sort of the hieroglyphics of the recording studio that now you're trying to interpret some 80 years later that, you know, there's nothing more to go on but what's in front of you. And sometimes I've had access to the the actual parts, the individual parts, And that's good because you can correspond those to the score and say, oh, okay, this mark I see here in the bassoon, the bassoon is also marked something here. So maybe these things are related. Maybe he's trying to repeat these bars or play these bars over there. And and so you you have to go through and figure out what was the end result. Now, I'm the first to say that I don't know if my interpretation of what he did in the recording studio uh, is what I ended up with, but I hope that it's close anyway. And I don't really change the the music itself, but there's often repeats or bars that are marked out of a score that I might include in the score, because usually those things are done for timing reasons, uh, you know, make it fit better and work with the script, perhaps. So if there's some interesting bars that have been marked out, I will often include those Um, because, hey, this is more Herman to listen to. And sometimes there are bars that are obvious repeats. Herman, you know, repeats things. So if he's repeated it 10 times and marked out two of them, eight's probably enough. We'll leave it at that. So so you have to make those kinds of judgments. Um, Sonara had a lot of markings in it, and there's no recording. There was a lot of thought that went into how does this work? And I assumed that since there was poetry being read over these, that they made changes in a rehearsal to say, oh, you know, perhaps I want a little more time in this section to say this stanza. That's perhaps what happened. And so I put some repeats into that that weren't there and made a few changes to even the orchestration, not the orchestration itself, but 
I believe in one section I pared it down somewhat and then did the full orchestration on the second time through just to create more interest in there. And there were some indications that that had happened. So I tried to do that as well. Of course, you have to do all the parts as well beyond the score itself. There's a lot of time spent just meticulously making the parts ready for the players, making sure that the page turns are in the right place so that you know they're not playing a fast passage and trying to make a page turn and things like that. Lots and lots of details on that that you have to worry about. I have a kind of a multi-stage technique for checking all the parts. I check them, check them, check them, check them again, recheck them, because every minute that you waste in the studio answering a question or fixing a note is a minute that you can't get back and that can't be spent getting the music down on tape, so to speak. And then, of course, there's tons of time choosing a studio, booking it, got to go there, see it, make sure they have the right ISO booth, talk to the engineers, talk about layout, how are you going to set up the orchestra, uh, how's he going to do the microphones, what techniques do you want to use, do they have a break room, do they have a kitchen, how much parking do they have? I mean, there's a million little details that go into that. It pretty much all comes down to me in the end. I usually have a friend who works with me in the booth. I'm sure your audience will know Bill Stromberg. He's helped helped me over the years, um, you know, working with me in the booth while I'm recording my scores and then now doing these. He's been he's been there as well. And obviously he has an amazing set of ears and and knows Herman inside and out. So that's been very helpful as well. And then you have to arrange for the food to be at the session as well. <laughs> Fortunately, I have my wife has been helping in that area. So that's good. Then you have to book all the musicians. You know, once you have a session, you've got to find all the musicians. And for these recordings, I really went out and tried to put together an orchestra, which became the Hollywood Studio Orchestra. Um, I recruited them all from basically musicians that I know and, and musicians that they knew, put them together. It's a good bunch of folks, and they've been really helpful. And fortunately for these sessions, I'm able to send the parts out earlier before the recording session. Usually if I'm writing a score, the technique is you write right up until the recording session starts, and then you hand the parts over to the players and they are sight reading. But we're fortunate in a way here that we can actually do that ahead of time. So you, know, you do all that preparation, you check them a million times, you send them out to the players, and then they ask the questions over the phone before the session <laughs> and you work those things out. That's great. That's much better. Uh, despite all that, you end up printing them all out again taking them to the session. I set them out personally on the stands to make sure that every player's got the parts that they need and all the copies they need. They're in the order of what we're going to record in. And I make sure they've got a sight line to the podium and they aren't blocked by baffles and things like that. I also keep a checklist on my podium of here's the exact thing that we're going to record and how much time we're going to spend on each piece. It's all budgeted out ahead of time. You have to plan it to make sure that you can get through everything. Because so there's a lot, a lot, a lot of preparation that goes into a recording session. So that when you get there in those three or four hours that you may have, you can get everything down that you want uh, and just focus on interpretation, timing, and all the little things that you have to do for conducting. Of course, just preparing for conducting, I think I spent a month every day before the melodrama session conducting every one of these pieces in my living room, you know, on video and playing that back and trying all sorts of different things, preparing for what I was going to do. Practice makes perfect, right? Post-recording, you've got to take all those tracks that you did 
that the engineer put together. There's a sort of a stereo mix from the from the session, uh, along with all the, the multi-track stuff, and you've got to go through a whole process of editing that, getting all the takes you want. I do all that work as well, putting together the takes, make sure I get the performance that I want, doing every bit of editing I can think of to make it as good as I can make it. And then pre-COVID, I was working with a mixer and who did the mix down on several of the works that you've heard. So that's a whole nother process where they take it and, and do the, the mixing. And I worked with him for many hours. He worked many hours and I worked many hours with him to get them as good as we could get them. Uh, then finally, you've got to put together the album cover. Even though these are virtual, we put together an album cover. So I find uh, the images and the fonts and create all that. I've actually had a great time doing that. It's kind of something else new for me to do in this case. Put that all together, write a few liner notes, put it all together and put it up and hope someone likes it. <laughs> that's what that's that's sort of the process pre-COVID. Post-COVID has been, you know, in an age when the government says you can't have 40 or 50 people in a room together. It's very different. So last year I had prepared an orchestral recording session but obviously that couldn't happen, so I took a different tack, and that's how I went back to the crime classics. I'd already done one session of crime classics, one volume, three different crime classics episodes, and so I decided to go back to those because I said, well, we're going to have to move to remote recording, and the process for remote recording had to be invented in a way. I mean, people were doing this, but I wasn't doing it, so I needed to understand how to do it. And I picked specifically some of the, the episodes that focused on one instrumental color, like the Three French Horns, I believe, was the first one we did. And that was really to simplify the process. We did one player, <laughs> multi-tracking, and then the mixing process, which I took over at that point, was somewhat simplified. Obviously, there's only the few tracks, and there's only one color, and this makes it much simpler. And then as those progressed, I tried to make them more and more. As they progressed and my skills progressed, I just started doing more and more complex works and pieces. Uh, that series ended with Your Loving Son, Nero, <laughs> which uh, is, I, it's, I think it's what, clarinet, bass clarinet, French horn, um, timpani, percussion, and harp. So, you know, fair amount going on in there, and it's about a 10-minute score. So that was quite involved, and, and that was sort of the culmination of the Crime Classic series that we did. Um, but it, it, those, if you listen to those, they reflect kind of the progression of this ability to do remote recording and my skills as a mixer and things like that. You can hear, hopefully, improving on each one. And now we've moved on and move back to getting into larger orchestral works. So now we've got the full orchestra, lots of tracks going on, and um, it's quite interesting. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
and that was a piece entitled Blackbeard's 14th Wife, Why She Was No Good For Him, composed by Bernard Herrmann for the radio and performed by the Hollywood Studio Orchestra, conducted by my guest today, Michael McGeehee. Now, Michael, how do you choose the pieces you record? Well, I I really have just gone through, I mean, since I'm concentrating on Herman, that makes it somewhat easier. I've gone through the scores, tried to determine which ones I think were the best, most representative of what's going on. For instance, in the crime classics, there's kind of a little theme running through the different volumes. The first volume actually included a few scores that were not entirely Herman's original music, but were Herman's adaptations of music of the period. So in several of these episodes, he would adapt music from the time frame of the story and put his own special Herman flair on it. And so I've included a couple of those in that volume. And then obviously we did the recordings where he focused on one instrumental timbre. We did several of those. Obviously the melodrams have been a big part of what I've been doing and that project's going to be coming to completion here within the next couple of months. So those were kind of a framework that I had chosen. So those kind of decisions drove a lot of what I wanted to do, you know, which pieces to pick from within the framework of the pieces that I already had chosen. Explain to us, what are melodrams? The melodrams, melodrams is actually a term that Herman himself coined, although when he spoke of it, he acted he sort of acted as if it was a standard <laughs> terminology. What he really meant by it was a combination of the spoken word and music. And he traces the history of this back to the ancient Romans or Greeks. And, uh, you know, there's been a tradition of this kind of music over time. And that that's how he explains it. He talks about this in two different places. There's a, there's a 1970s interview in New York he did in Rochester in which he talks about this. And then the other instance is um, in the 30s, which is when he actually wrote these pieces, he, there, were, there was a radio program which was called Melodrams, and they were playing four of his melodrams, kind of focusing on the music. And they had all been played previously on another radio show, which was David Ross's show about poetry, the name of the show may be in the modern manner or Poets Gold. Um, it's a little bit ambiguous as to which of these shows it was. Poets Gold was the name that David Ross gave to his poetry book that he wrote, which contained some of the poetry that, at least one piece that Herman used. But he wrote them for that show, but then the, on that show they were focusing on the poetry. So I guess they thought that these works were so good that they would make a different show where they would focus more on the music. And for this particular radio program, which you can hear on YouTube, actually, the introductions to each of these four pieces are almost certainly written by Herman, even though they don't say so. He's clearly describing what he's doing in these pieces. And I think what's important about them is that you have to realize that all of these works were written before Herman had scored any radio programs and well before he had scored any films of any sort or television. So these are like his first works in a way. He had a few things before that as well, but these were his first works that were played on the radio, and these were a big deal. And in them, he's actually, in these descriptions of the pieces, he's describing how he's taking different approaches 
for underscoring the dialogue with music. So he's experimenting with scoring <laughs> in these pieces before he's ever written a score, <laughs> even for radio. So I think they're hugely important for his personal history for us to understand what was he thinking about. And you can see the different approaches. Some are more complicated than others. And you can kind of see that I think he was forming his original concept for how he was going to score radio and then ultimately film when that came along. I don't know whether or not he was foreseeing that path in his life or not, but it might have, it might have been pretty clear to him that that might, might be a possibility. But he was clearly experimenting and figuring out how he was going to do it. the story of the rulers. They rested a little in the shadow of my towers, and then they passed. They were dispersed like those shadows when the sun goes down. They were driven like straws before the wind of death. Listen, O wayfarer, to the words of my death, for they were not the words of my life, 
Save up your soul and taste the beautiful wine of peace. About this table sat many hawk-eyed kings with many one-eyed kings. But now all sit in the dark and none are able to see. feet of men. I had ten thousand horses groomed by captive kings. I had secular treasures. And the west and the east were two heads bowing came to me from him who dies not. I called my captains and my strong riders, thousands upon thousands with swords and lances. I called my tributary kings together and those who were proud rulers under them. I opened the boxes of treasure to them saying, take pearls of gold, mountains of silver, and give me one more day upon the earth. They stood silent, looking upon the group. So that I died and death came to sit upon my throne.
That was the City of Brass, a melodram composed by Bernard Herrmann and performed by the Hollywood Studio Orchestra, conducted by my guest today, Michael McGeehy, with narration by well-known composer Christopher Young, one of many melodrams that uh, Chris has narrated for you, Michael. How did you get Christopher Young involved with the New Discoveries project? Well, I, I first met... Chris Young, about 1987, while I was in the USC film scoring program, he came and spoke, and we were all fascinated by what he had to say, of course, and a group of us took him, we said, hey, uh, you want to go get some dinner <laughs> after the after his lecture? And then he said, sure, and we went and, and we sat and talked for hours and hours about film music and scoring and and everything that he was doing. This was a long time ago, you know, he, he was making his way at that time and, and was quite fascinating. And he's just so personable and giving of his time and, and knowledge. Uh, he's sort of famous for that. So um, I've known him over the years a little bit and I saw him at an event and I told him about what I was doing. And he's, he's a big Herman fan, has spoken about it in the past. And one of the ideas that I had when I did the melodrums was, hey, this is interesting, you know, First of all, you have these pieces of music that have spoken word over them. So I can get people that are influenced by Herman or knew Herman or something like that that were in some way related to Herman to do these voiceovers. And so Chris was a natural choice in that regard. And I liked his voice, too. I thought it was neat. So I thought, well, let's try this. And the other thing about that is that I always had, since we're releasing these digitally, I can release them with the narration and without the narration. So if you want to just listen to the pure music, you can. If you want to listen to it with the narration, you can. I think that's one of the things that the digital release gives you a little bit more freedom as to how you can do this. I've even envisioned that if someone else wants to do a narration, I can do a second narration of the same piece. And I think that might be interesting as well, just to see how different people interpret it. Because everyone approaches it differently. But when I told him about the project and what I was doing, he immediately said yes. <laughs> it wasn't hard. He thought it was interesting and he was really just very generous and said, sure, I'd love to do it. And invited me down to his studio and went down there a few times and did the voiceover. And it was just great. He was fantastic. And we had some great conversation as well. <laughs> Yes, Christopher Young, a wonderful composer. Oh, yes. He, yes. I hope he has uh, many more scores to come, and I hope that he gets even better pictures than he's gotten in the past. I, I think, you know, he, he, he should get better pictures, and some he has, but um, just great, great composer and so much to offer. And his knowledge of film music is amazing. <laughs> and he has a library of film music books, which is pretty extensive. As a matter of fact, that's the only thing he would he would take from me was I, I, you know, I wanted to do something for him, you know, for doing this work, but he, he asked for a copy of my click track book, which was nice. So I put that in his library. <laughs> now, as you have mentioned already, you record your music with members of the Hollywood Symphony Orchestra, with the title of the Hollywood Studio Symphony. How did this collaboration come about? Well, as I said, the orchestra I put together really from people that I knew, people that I had worked with, and then references through them. Actually, if you call a musician and say, you know, I'm doing this session, I'm recording Bernard Herrmann, already you have their attention. <laughs> 
and you tell them what you're doing and and they're very generous with their time and they always want to play they always want to record something like this is unusual so they're interested some of the members of the orchestra are big herman fans so that's kind of interesting too and if a musician can't play on a session they always refer you to someone who can and you just build an orchestra in that way um that that's essentially what's happened is I put together a group of people through that mechanism. Um, just talking to people, telling them what I'm doing, asking them if they're interested, would they like to be involved? And they've been great, every one of them. And in this remote time, you know, they've all stepped up and they've all increased their home studios to make their situations better and to give themselves a way to continue making money while they aren't able to go into the studio. A lot of them have some great equipment. And what's interesting about that is you get really high quality, good recordings out of their studios because they are getting the microphones and the setups that make them sound the best. That's actually been a plus side to this. But the orchestra itself is really one that I put together and I've been able to continue to, to use the musicians as well. So that's been great. Having established that relationship, it would have been more difficult and during the pandemic to do this remote recording without that relationship already established. But I think that's been hugely beneficial. What has been the biggest size of orchestra you have used in these recordings? That would have been for the, the melodrums that we did, City of Brass, Sonara, those pieces, Annabelle Lee, those were larger. And I think with um, an upcoming one, there's about 46, so... There's some large ensembles, but they're not giant orchestras. Part of what I did in planning out New Discovery was sizing the orchestra. It needed to be something that was feasible financially, but then also reflected something that was good enough to do. It was big enough to to record the pieces that we wanted to record. And of course, you can augment that at any time you want. But most of the radio scores were an orchestra of around this size, uh, sometimes smaller, sometimes larger, as far as I can determine. There isn't a lot of evidence there, but based on looking at scores and copies of parts and things like that to determine how many string players there were mostly, that's that's where it gets more controversial. That's part of it. So that's the size orchestra that we use to date. Who knows? We may get bigger. <laughs> Now, a series that Herman worked on in the 1950s was Crime Classics, which used very small ensembles. Can you tell us more about the Crime Classics series and Herman's involvement in the music of those episodes? Yeah, it, there's about uh, there's over 50 episodes. They're each a half hour long, the, the, the actual radio show itself. The show itself is quite entertaining to listen to. So I've listened to all of them multiple times. The narration, the dialogue is all very good. There are a lot of actors in there that, that you'd recognize. William Conrad is Nero, and <laughs> he's in a bunch of them. Uh, and a lot of famous radio personalities are there. Just unto themselves, they're entertaining to, to listen to. And they're all available, all except one, which apparently was lost. So that was one score that we included because we, I wanted to get that score that had been totally lost, recorded. The score itself wasn't lost, but the, the episode was lost. And that series is actually quite interesting because it's all about, it's, it's essentially murder stories, true murder stories as told through the narrators, which is obviously something Herman, you know, that, that's right up his alley. He didn't have to do this series. It was a very low budget for 
what Herman was doing. This was 1954 or so. So he certainly didn't need the money. I think he did it for the challenge and also to stay involved in radio, which I think was a part of his love. And I'm sure that he wrote these, you know, probably took him a day or two on each one. I don't, most of them are dated with a, a single date on them. So perhaps he spent a day working on these. I don't know. That's how fast he was able to dash these off. It's, it's amazing for the quality that you get. And the scores are quite fun to look at as well because it's all Herman's notes. The scores are all held at UCLA and they have also the script along with them. And it's probably Herman's copy of the script based on the scribbles and the notes that you see in the margins. So that's kind of interesting as well to see how they, they sat through kind of a, a walkthrough and determined where the music was going to go and things like that. And you could see that in the script. So that was fun.
That was your loving son Nero from the radio series Crime Classics that ran from 1953 to 54 with original score composed by Bernard Herrmann and performed by a ensemble of four players which were conducted by my guest today Michael McGeehy. And Michael, where can we listen to Crime Classics? Yes, if you go onto YouTube and search for crime classics, you can find them all. Now, there are several different sites, old-time radio sites that play, that have these. And if you listen, they're of varying quality. So there are some that are better quality. I, I wish I could tell you the exact one, which has the best quality, but you'll just have to listen. Some aren't at the right speed, so you have to be careful. But they're out there. If you just look on YouTube, you can find them. And, and then specifically the OTR, Old Time Radio website, I think they might have all of them as well. They're, they're worth a listen. They're, they're quite interesting. Now, Michael, one of my favorite wee recordings of yours is for Herman's score for the Twilight Zone episode, Walking Distance. Why did you choose to record this? Um, no, it really wasn't. And, and actually, the Twilight Zone, the Walking Distance recording was sort of the first thing that I actually recorded for New Discovery, although it wasn't necessarily intended to be released because, as I saw it, it didn't really necessarily fit into the mold of extremely rare or unknown since there are a few recordings of it, wonderful recordings out uh, of the score. But I did it for several reasons. One was that it got me back into the studio to do some conducting after having been away for quite a long time. It was a way of warming up, <laughs> seeing if I could still do it. And it was also meant to test the size of the string ensemble. Uh, so this was one of the key reasons that I chose it, was that the size of the string group was pretty much exactly what I wanted to try for the string sections in the radio scores. And even though in walking distance, they're really not treated as sections, but each player has individual parts in walking distance. Quite amazing score, you know, beyond just being phenomenally good. So I recorded that, 
just to get the sound of that string orchestra. And then in the same session, I also did a recording of City of Brass, sort of ironic recording of City of Brass with strings only, <laughs> because I wanted to hear that piece done with that size string orchestra. So I have like a test recording of that to see, you know, to try and convince myself that, okay, this is enough strings to, to get the, enough sound to bring the piece off with. That was kind of uh, a question mark in my mind until that point. I think we also recorded Psycho, uh, a little bit of Psycho in that session for fun, which we didn't release, but I have. That was fun. And then another thing was I was trying to, the concept I had of creating like a suite out of the score, sort of like Herman did for many of his scores, he created concert suites. And my thinking was that in order to get film music played more in the concert hall, it needs to be set up to make it easy for it to be played in the concert hall. And one way to do that is to create some kind of suite that's a complete unified part. It's not, you know, 27 cues <laughs> uh, all with different pages, you know, they're just not practical to do in the orchestra. So I thought, well, I'll make this into kind of a suite, you know, make a unified score. And that way, if there are orchestras that want to play it, there's something that's available. And in fact, I have been contacted by an orchestra that wants to do it. So perhaps after the pandemic is over, that will happen. We'll see. I didn't release this track for quite some time because it wasn't really necessarily intended to be released, but people encouraged me to do so when they heard it, and, and it's been quite well received. I'm, I'm very happy with the, the reaction to it.
and that was a re-recording of music from the 1959 Twilight Zone episode Walking Distance, original score composed by Bernard Herrmann and performed by the Hollywood Studio Orchestra, conducted by my guest today, Michael McGeehee. Now Michael, why is it so important for us film music fans to hear and get to know Bernard Herrmann's music for radio? I think part of it is to recognize where he came from, what he did, and how he got to the level of those films by the time he got there, because he really had a huge amount of experience in scoring before he ever went to Citizen Kane. He had dozens and dozens of these radio scores that he had done, and most of that technique transferred to film. He used essentially the same techniques he was using in radio, and just apply them directly there. His radio music is, and his music in general, is evocative of images. And and I think that, you know, he probably concentrated on that in radio since it was purely oral. He, he tried to evoke certain types of, um, you know, effects in a way for storms and the wind and all, all sorts of different things that he attempted that when you went to film, you could do the same thing uh, and even though you were seeing perhaps the wind blowing, you, it's it's still bolstered by the fact that the music is beneath it, um, driving that emotional charge. He does develop over time, even though his sound is there from the beginning. So I think it's fun <laughs> to hear, and I think it's educational as well. How do you finance the recordings, and what kind of return do the recordings get? Do the profits matter to you? Or is this, is this just a labor of love? Well, I finance the recordings myself. I keep the cost as low as I can by doing every possible job that I can do. Um, if I could play all the instruments, I'd probably try that too. But <laughs> uh, I suppose it's best for everyone that I don't do that. I try to focus most of the actual money spent on the musicians where it can do the most good. Because, you know, they're the ones that are really bringing these things to life. I'm just guiding the process. That's my role is to get the best performance out of them that they can give uh, and, and try to make sure that I help that make it onto the recording itself. That's where I focus most of the actual dollars going out the door. Profit, of course, is very important, if not very present. I always took the position that this is a business and we're offering a product. Um, and if the product is good and people like it, they will buy it. That's one reason I like Bandcamp, though, is that I can present the recording and people can listen to the entire recording in high-quality audio, better than CD-quality audio. It's not just an excerpt. It's the entire performance. They can listen several times before it even asks you to purchase. And I think that's really fair because you can hear the product. You know whether or not you want it. So I like that model for me that works because I don't want to ask anyone to buy something, you know, from someone they might not know anything about. And the recordings have a small, a very small, but kind of a dedicated group of fans. You know, this is a this music is an obscure corner of a tiny niche market. <laughs> so there aren't millions of customers out there or even thousands. We're, we're talking really small numbers here. But one of the reasons I started releasing a new track every month was to give the audience a regular way of connecting with the label 
and having something to look forward to, sort of a record of the month club kind of thing. And I don't know that anyone else is doing that or anything like that at these uh, at this point in time, but the opportunities there. And I think in order for a business to flourish, you have to continually produce and produce high quality and get better, hopefully, which is what we're doing. So that's my approach and my thinking on it. Your release in January 2021 was Weep You No More Sad Fountains, which featured a narration by Stephen C. Smith, who literally wrote the book on Bernard Herrmann. Tell us about his contribution to New Discoveries. Uh, well, Stephen, he's been wonderful, and very generous to help me out and do um, this latest set of readings. You know, he's just a wealth of knowledge, not just about Herman, but about film and historical uh, literature and, and all sorts of things. He is always fascinating to talk to and be around. So any opportunity I can to hang out with Stephen is a, an opportunity I'll jump on. And he has been involved to some extent in that he's been a very welcome guest at all the recording sessions. He's been there listening in the booth or in the room and helping out in any way that he can and has always offered a lot of encouragement and even for this recording, some feedback on the mix and all those sorts of things. So he's always there for you and uh, I really enjoy working with him. the snowy mountains, heaven's sun, doth gently waste. But my son's heavenly eyes view not your weeping, that now lie sleeping, softly, now softly lies sleeping. is a reconciling, a rest that peace begets. Doth not the sun rise smiling when fair at even he sets? Rest you then, rest sad eyes, melt not in weeping while she lies sleeping softly, now softly lies sleeping. And that was We Pew No More Sad Fountains, with original score composed by Bernard Herrmann, with narration performed by Stephen C. Smith, and performed by the Hollywood Studio Orchestra, conducted by my guest today, Michael McGeehy. 
Now, Michael, are there any of Bernard Herrmann's radio compositions that you have yet to record but cannot at present? One score that I would dearly love to record is his radio score to Norman Corwin's On a Note of Triumph. I think this is the greatest radio play of the era. It's incredibly moving, and the music is fantastic. The The Corwin writing is fantastic. Everything about it is good. This was written for VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day, May 8th, 1945, so the end of World War II. Corwin's writing is just brilliant, <laughs> and Herman was just at his best underscoring this piece. Now, the only score that exists that I've been able to find is a three-line conductor's score. So the full score doesn't exist. So it has to be entirely reconstructed. So it's a big job, and it's a long piece. There's, it's an hour-long uh, radio drama, so there's a lot of music in it and a lot of work to be done. <laughs> so I would love, dearly love to record that. I think it needs to be done as a recording unto itself so you can hear the music. This is a great Herman work that practically no one knows about, so I'd love to do that. There's also um, one of the other libraries, the CBS libraries, there's one called Police Force, which was, it was actually for a show that didn't really make it to air, I believe, but they turned it into part of the library. So you've heard it as part of the library music, but it's the only one of those library sets that Herman did that hasn't been recorded, I believe. So I think that would be uh, be a good one to do. And actually, I think that the score is there and it, it really does fit into what I'm doing. So I'm, I'm hopeful I can do that one. Ultimately, I want to do, if I'm able, I'd love to do all the radio dramas, just starting straight up from Dauber, which was the first one, and moving through Dracula and all those other things that he did. As many as I can get done, I'd like to do, but, you know. Um, Are there any other composers that you would like to feature on new discoveries in the future? For instance, would Jerry Goldsmith's radio music interest you? Oh, of course. A Goldsmith is one of my favorites, obviously. he He's an amazing person. His music is perhaps more challenging in some ways, but yeah, I think there's a lot of Goldsmith scores. He'd be right at the top of the list if I were to do someone else. I think I saw a Wagon Train episode the other day and it was scored by him. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. That's nice. Let's try that. Yeah, I would love to do Goldsmith scores. It's just, I have to focus on something <laughs> at one point and yeah, I would love to see that. One of my customers, he wanted a score done and he tracked down the score, which was thought to be lost. He found it and sent it to me <laughs> and said, here, do this one. <laughs> so if anyone's got a good Goldsmith score they want me to do, send it on. I'd love to try that. And then any of there's lots of other composers. You know, I love Alex North. I love Miklos Rosia, all the Golden Age composers, Waxman, Friedhofer, so many others. And and even composers up to this day, but there's endless supply, I'll say. Now, as you may know, Quartet Records recently released a re-recording of Bernard Herrmann's 1972 score for Endless Night. What is your opinion of Bernard Herrmann's scores in the 70s towards the end of his life? I, I think that they're wonderful. I think that they're excellent. I'm so happy Quartet did Endless Night. Um, I had it on my radar to do. But when I found that they were going to do it, that saved me a few few dollars. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> uh, 
it's a great score. They did a good job. And I think Obsession, which was his next to the last score, is perhaps his greatest score. It's perfect in every way. It just everything about it. It's to me, it seems like the score of a lifetime. And the combination of the choir and the organ and the orchestra, you know, this was a this was extremely complex work. And it's just perfect. It works as a piece, as just a big symphonic piece. If you just play it beginning to end in sequence, I think it works very well, which is amazing. Sometimes a score won't work played in, it doesn't work as a piece of music unto itself played in the sequence that it's in the picture. But Obsession is, it seems like it was written as one unified whole, uh, as a work of art from beginning to end. And I think it's maybe his greatest work. I think if he had lived longer, he may have acknowledged that in some way, that this was very special. I, I think the stories of, about him writing it and, and the story where he watches the film, you know, they, they're watching the preview, I, I think, with De Palma and so forth. And after it ends and the lights come up and he's just in tears because, <laughs> you know, he's just emotionally spent on this picture. He said he doesn't remember writing it. <laughs> And he can't bear to part with these characters. <laughs> and, you know, he had a picture of Jean-Vierre in his wallet when he died. I think there was a very deep connection to it. And I think those are very moving kind of stories. It shows you the depth of his emotional attachment to what he was doing. It's just profound. And to listen to it, I think it's it's just phenomenally good in every way. And the scoring technique... The ending sequence with the cross-cutting between him and her, you know, going back and forth and the way the music mirrors that and the culmination of the camera spinning around and the, the waltz going again. And it's just, it's just a fantastic, un unbelievably perfect scoring that is hardly ever matched anywhere <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. So at the end of his life, I think he was at the top of his game. You know, I don't think that he had lost anything. I think that, in fact, with Taxi Driver, maybe he was heading off in some new directions that would have been extremely interesting. He wasn't really that old in our terms these days. You know, he, he died somewhat young in a way. Not young, but he wasn't that old. But, um, you know, he could have had 10, 20 years left of great scores that we just didn't get. So it's a real shame. But I love all those scores. Uh, I think they're all great. Now, Michael, we're coming now to the end of the interview. Before we finish, can you tell us what we can hear next from New Discoveries? Next up is uh, Something Tells, which is a short melodrama. This one actually with text by David Ross. Uh, and, and, and the reading is, again, by Stephen C. Smith. And... This is actually a part of a three-part poem cycle that Herman did. So we did the Weep You No More Sad Fountains is part of it. Uh, Something Tells is part. And then next up would be The Willow Leaf. And <laughs> those comprise this three-part poem cycle. So that'll be next up. And those are all kind of unified work that we have that's coming out. And then following those will be a couple more melodrams, one of which is A Shropshire Lad by A.E. Hausman. And then the 
final one is the one that started it all for Herman, La Belle Dame Sans Merci, which um, which is a Keats poem. This was Herman's first work performed anywhere on the radio or television, and it was the first of the melodrames. It's coming last in our series, uh, but that's because it's the most ambitious work of all of them and was extremely complicated to put together. <laughs> I'll tell you that. And I think um, that it was a huge challenge, but people are really going to be amazed by this piece. It, it It's no wonder that, that everyone at CBS perked up their ears when they heard this and said, who is this guy? And you realize that Herman was 23 years old or so when he wrote this. And it's just absolutely astounding. It's huge <laughs> and extremely dramatic. And it goes all over the place in mood and texture and dynamics and tempo. And it's been quite a challenge putting it together. And I, I'm just so excited to see it come out finally after 80 years or so. <laughs> Michael McGeehy, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I wish on behalf of the Cinematic Sound Radio Network new discoveries every success in the future and thank you very much for joining us today to talk about this unique and important preservation project of the music of the great Bernard Herrmann. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for um, talking with me this morning. I appreciate it. I do hope you have enjoyed today's interview with Michael McGeehy. I leave you with New Discovery's latest offering, Something Tells, a melodram composed in 1934 and is a joyful celebration of spring and is performed by the Hollywood Studio Orchestra, conducted by Michael McGeehy, with a narration of a text written by David Ross, performed by Stephen S. Smith. And if you are interested in listening to more or purchasing some of these re-recordings, please go to newdiscovery.bandcamp.com. The link is on the show's webpage. My thanks again to Michael McGeehy for joining us today, and until we meet again, from me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening. There is something tells a tree to wave a green sombrero plumed with swallows and ride a pony hill to the sun. There is something tells a butterfly to leave the nunnery of its cocoon and go gypsying in colored dress when April stirs a fiddle in a willow tree. There is something tells the feet of goats to rattle every hilltop like a drum and kick the silver flagon from the shoulders of the grass.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sinsound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to Tee Public to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.